Hello, and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I am not Marku or Aurora, no matter how hard I try. But alas, I am Dr. Sarah Jane Ward, today's guest moderator. I am joined by Dr. Jehan Marku. Hello, hello. Our fearless lead moderator, and Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everybody. Other members of our group this week are two of our good friends, Dr. Deb Kimless. Hey, everyone. Dr. Kimless is a trained anesthesiologist and chief medical officer of PG Pharma and making a repeat visit to our show, Dr. Del Potter. Hi, everyone. Dr. Potter is a chief science officer and founding member of IO Biosciences. So today we have a great show lined up for you. For our news roundup, we have a range of stories to comment on, from whether industry investments in academic cannabis research present an ethical dilemma, to whether or not this is the year you should tackle your caffeine addiction. For our rapid science conversation, we'll discuss a new clinical trial with cannabis for the treatment of diabetic neuropathy, co-authored by one of our guests, Dr. Deb, and touch on a very cool new article on the potential intersection of artificial intelligence psychedelics, and neuropathic disorders. And as we do every week, we will end this episode with a game that will test your critical thinking abilities on some breaking news. And we will be right back with you to talk about all of this and more after a quick break. Welcome back, everybody. It is time to talk about some interesting tidbits we found in the recent news. And away we go. So the first article that we're going to talk about today is Cannabis for Everything? 23 Industries Seizing the $32 Billion Market Opportunity, which was published online in CB Insights Research. As legal cannabis goes mainstream, it's creeping into everything from CBD oil-infused beauty products to houses made of hemp to baking, banking for cannabis retailers. Dr. Deb, I'm going to start with you. I'm interested in your thoughts on this article. Obviously, as an MD, you have insights into the impact on medicine. Could you comment either on that or any of these other topics from this article of your choosing? Absolutely. So the, the medicine piece is kind of low-hanging fruit for me to comment on. In the cannabis industry, medicine seems to be a little bit polarized. For those who embrace it, it can be very lucrative, both in uh, financial remuneration or in actually helping patients um, have risk mitigation for, for medications that they're taking. So they can actually take cannabis and reduce the types of medicines that they're taking that could create more harmful side effects. There are docs though that are polarized against it and still feel that this is snake oil and don't wanna get into it and, and actually campaign against it. So it's, it's a pretty exciting uh, landscape for sure. Awesome, thank you. How about you, Dell? What were your, any, any sort of top interesting industries that you think are being impacted right now um, in the cannabis world? 
Well, again, I'm very focused on pharmaceuticals. And uh, what I see uh, in the cannabis landscape is uh, a lot of legacy claims and a lot of uh, claims about efficacy. I'm really interested in seeing if we can really develop the science behind uh, those claims and a lot of which we know to be true, uh, but actually don't have science to demonstrate. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of uh, the effectiveness of CBD for sleep, uh, something that you know uh, a lot of people use cannabis products for, uh, and uh, anxiety uh, as well. Uh, these are common indications, but uh, what's the real science behind them? Absolutely, could not agree more. Thank you. Uh, some of the other <laughs> more curious uh, sections that I know a lot less about that I'm hoping maybe Jehan or Nigam could chime in on. What about cryptocurrency and banking? Do either one of you want to take up this issue? I see Nigam nodding his head, so that means I'm going to call on you. Um, sure. Yeah, I can. I can speak a little bit. So I'm going to hit the banking one first. It's a. Uh, it's a really big issue. I mean, I want to say maybe a third of the cannabis operators I know, maybe more, have a story about their bank account getting shut down, their company account, their family's personal account just because they're like affiliated um there's just i we could i could just rant for the next like 30 40 minutes all about this and tell some you know side stories and all this it, it's a big problem um so there are certain banks that are more friendly to it there's also just like in every category groups trying to take advantage of it so people saying we're a cannabis friendly bank and they have like a 12 percent rate on every dime that goes through their thing and it's just kind of obnoxious so um Big problem, big pain point, and you know, obviously, the Fed legalization thing is the issue there. So, you know, banking is being touched. Um, um, one other thing that I just want to touch on that I really liked about scanning this is I used to say this thing all the time, and I kind of stopped saying it because it's just like so obvious now is that cannabis is going to permeate every single aspect of our lives. You know, it kind of already was like involved. And if you look at, you know, history runs and cycles, historically, we were doing a lot of these things, you know, the hemp car and the hemp plastic and the hemp biofuels, all this stuff happened before, but now it's 2021 and we're taking notice and maybe we're going to get some movement in the fed in the next four years or whatever. So, um, those are kind of my, my thoughts about this article. Awesome. Thank you. Jayhan, usually we don't let you make too many comments on this show is you're the moderator. You have anything else to add? Um, yeah, I would say that the, of this 23 sort of industry list, the alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverage space, I thought that was cool that they separated those out into two separate spaces. And I definitely think that the, the, the can of beer, the non-alcoholic cannabinoid beverage space is very fascinating. As soon as we can solve the sort of um, nano emulsion, water solubility, consistency, and safety issues, just a couple things on, on the old checklist. Uh, but I think that is very promising. I'm also very interested in sports products, as I've talked about on the show. Um, a lot of my friends who train and even pro athletes we see are using these products. Really interested to just see some more data about that and what these products can do. Can they affect VO2 max, which is a big indicator of kind of how long you're going to live in some cases. The one thing that you know, I kind of was thinking, oh man, they should get rid of this off the list. But then I thought was the symbolism of the list was cannabis tourism for cannabis activities. And I thought, well, isn't everything potentially a cannabis activity? Like, oh, let's go to the vineyard, add some cannabis. Let's go to the beach, add some cannabis. Um, 
So, you know, maybe they're going to take you to ancient Assyrian sites where the old hash assassins used to meet or something, but, you know, that would be cool. But, but, you know, I think some of these things need to be fleshed out a little bit for them to really be, you know, an industry. I, I think that's some cannabis tourism I could get into. The ancient thing that sounds like much better than this this other thing the the kind of modern cannabis tourism thing awesome thanks jayhan uh, i just want to circle back quickly to deb because uh when jayhan mentioned cannabis and athletes and vo2 max for some reason i just i had a feeling that maybe deb would want to chime in a little bit more about cannabis and wellness Do you have any closing thoughts on that well i have a question for everyone on the panel what do you think about it just you know, being used for wellness without any proof of concept. We all know we have an endocannabinoid system and receptors. And the question is, how do you know when you take too much? And it's, even though people are intending to do well by themselves and think it's good for wellness products, there's no specific dosing out there. Just thought I'd throw that question out to everyone. All right. We'll yeah. bounce back to Jayhan to give him the final thought. All right. Well, as, as the official representative of the group and speaking for everyone, just kidding, just kidding. But um, uh, th there's two approaches to cannabinoid wellness. One is just get a shovel and start shoving it in your gullet and hope something good happens. Um, the other is to create some guardrails and really give people guidance here. There's a lot of weird products coming out there, explosion of product diversity. And I think this is where things like self-grass assessments come into play, where Companies can get a group of third-party professionals together to assess their product or get certifications to say, actually, at the dose and administration form, this product, you know, as close as you can get is generally regarded as safe or other things like that versus just kind of a free-for-all, like you're going to Whole Foods and you're just scooping cannabinoids into a bag and then weighing it and making your smoothies at home. Like, there, I think there needs to be some specific guidelines around products and administrations before we can really let people off the chain to, you know, direct their own wellness. I mean, we don't, you know, people don't have to get a prescription to go to the gym and buy wheatgrass, you know, shots or anything like that, but there are standards and rules about hygiene and safety and, and even waivers you have to sign to engage in those activities. Makes sense. Yeah. Cause I get a lot of questions as a physician, you know, for patients going, should I just take this for wellness? And I think there's a lot of cannabis or cannabinoid scooping going on. Great discussion, everybody. Thanks. We're going to move on to our next article, uh, which touches upon some of the things that we just talked about, not only wellness, but as Del mentioned, more research. And this article was um, it focuses on the psychedelic research that is on the rise again in Europe. And so the article is entitled The Second Wave of Psychedelic Research in Europe. And the old world has had its own remarkable history concerning psychedelic research. It was, after all, the continent where Albert Hoffman first discovered LSD and where Dutch professor Jan Bastian treated the trauma of Holocaust survivors with that same substance for many decades. So this piece discusses the so-called second wave of psychedelic science that's happening on the European continent. And Del, I would like to start with you in, in perusing the list, and I, I assume you're probably very familiar um, with a lot of the research that they talked about in this article. Can you pick for us a specific clinical study on psychedelics going on right now that really excites you? Well, I will say, say generally that uh, Europeans are very much focused on the clinical aspect of uh, administration and uh, the 
clinical effects of these compounds. Uh, myself, I'm more focused on the pharmacological aspects. Uh, but having said that, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me was the study that is differentiating the effects of LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline, uh, trying to figure out uh, what are the differences between these compounds clinically, uh, how they might be differentially applied. Uh, the other thing that is of interest to me is uh, those areas of, uh, that are not immediately apparent as a possible uh, subject for psychedelic research, and that is cluster headaches. Uh, it has a, a certain history, uh, but I'm happy to see that uh, Europeans are taking a look at how these compounds might affect chronic pain and chronic pain pathways. That's awesome. Thank you. And if I were one of the panelists, I would right now want to talk about headache and serotonin, but I'm not, so I won't, but I'm going to pass it on uh, to Jehan. What are your thoughts on this exciting list of clinical studies going on with psychedelics in Europe? Uh, it is so awesome. I mean, uh, if you would have, if I was to get a, this list like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I'd be like, why are you torturing me with these pipe dreams of research? This is never going to happen. And then we see something like a four period crossover design with LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, and placebo at, at the University Hospital in Basel, where, you know, these people are going to be taking these different substances in a clinical setting. I mean, that is just so freaking cool. I mean, I'm still wondering how we can do that for cannabinoids like CBG, CBN, THC, CBD. I mean, I mean, what a glorious time for psychedelics research. And, and I just applaud the universities and companies who are engaging in this and clinically studying their products. I'm, I'm really excited, especially about the comparative acute effects of, of those psychedelics. I'm really interested to see that study come out. And Deb, you and I were just talking about this recently and sort of having a little bit of psychedelic envy, thinking about some of the things that are already happening and maybe some of the things that might be easier in psychedelic clinical research compared to cannabinoids. What were your thoughts after reading this article? Uh, I have to echo everybody else on the, on the call here that it is incredibly exciting. And what's even more exciting is that I've studied extensively in the cannabinoid space, new to the psychedelic space, but again, I'm all about, you know, stepwise approach to treatment and with reduced of side effects. And here, it seems like this is a beautiful laddered approach where if, you know, cannabinoids don't work and you want to try uh, psychedelics, again, it's, uh, it seems that these studies are, are showing efficacy and safety way beyond what traditional pharmaceuticals are showing. So I, I, I think it's an exciting time um, for patients. Awesome, thanks. Final thoughts from Nigam on this article. What'd you think? Yeah, I just had a, a couple quick ones. So one, I really liked um, how one of the researchers was having some hometown pride, as Jehan would call it, and saying LSD is a basilar product. Um, because it was created there. And he's um, saying it's tied to Basil's history as a center for pharmacology and innovation. So I like that framing. I'm, I love this article. I support what everyone else said. But it just kind of, you know, like Jayhan was saying, 10 years ago, this would have just been a pipe dream. And then now it's the guy's like, yeah, we invented LSD. Woohoo, hometown pride. You know, so it's kind of, um, I thought that was kind of a fun tidbit from the article. The other thing I wanted to say is that, you know, like I said, seconding what everyone else said, this is amazing. Really enjoyed reading this. I, I feel like I need to send like 20 emails now. And um, 
one thing I did notice though is that that I'm aware of some companies doing actively now um research about some of these uh naturalistic psychedelics and understanding the uh molecules beyond the primary psychoactive molecule. So like the entourage of the you know the mushroom components we've reviewed on the show uh, you know, the different types of mushrooms. And there's a huge variety. And then we started talking about, you know, mescaline. And this is coming from a lot of places. We're talking about DMT. We're talking about ayahuasca. We're talking about all this stuff. So that's something that I know some folks, did, several groups working on. I think Dell knows some some people too. Um, and I think that's super interesting, being a, a chemist, having worked in natural product purification previously, um, having done extraction, having, having had my own dreams about understanding the, you know, range of molecules in this, thing that already exists in nature and how we can understand the nuances and then utilize recombine or whatever for medical clinical purposes so i didn't see that's like the only thing i didn't see on here that i'm personally interested in so um just kind of sharing uh with the with the listener that that's another aspect of this realm of psychedelic research so awesome thank you thanks everybody Moving on to our third article in the news. Um, this is an article that might make you think about your New Year's resolutions and whether or not maybe this is the year you're going to quit the caffeine. So this is a really interesting um, piece that was published online in Health News um, by NPR. And it explores uh, Michael Pollan's new book, Caffeine. So after wrapping up his previous book on the potential therapeutic benefits of psychedelics, uh, author Michael Pollan turned his attention to a drug that is hidden in plain sight in all of our lives, caffeine. So he has this new audiobook called Caffeine that explores the science of caffeine addiction and withdrawal, which most of us probably know well, and the broader impact that coffee and tea have had on the modern world. So Jehan, you and I have been friends for a very long time, and you know how passionate I am about talking to people about what is addiction. You know, I spend a lot of time going into schools, talking to friends and people um, in my community about what do we mean when we talk about addiction. I love this quote in the article from Pollen. I think the word addiction has a lot of moral baggage attached to it, he says. As Roland Griffiths told me, if you have a steady supply of something, you can afford it, and it's not interfering with your life, there's nothing wrong with being addicted. What are your thoughts on this and on the um, article as a whole? I copied and pasted that, that quote into my Word document where I put all my favorite quotes. That was a quote where I just had to like take a moment and think about it. You know, and think about what I consume in my routine, you know, um, be it coffee, tea, sugary snacks, podcasts, you know, things you crave and miss when you don't have them. And that's why we always make this podcast freely available. We don't want um, people to miss it and go through withdrawals. But I think it's, you know, you know, more seriously, I feel like that's um, could be interpreted in kind of a dangerous way. And I think some people who maybe are struggling with substance abuse even if it's moderate, um, you know, I, I, well, let me, let me use an analogy. You know, we call like supplements, like herbal supplements. Um, they're not meant to be taken all the time. They're meant to supplement you during a period of time. And, you know, sometimes we are using substances to deal with certain things in our life, whether they're prescribed or obtained illicitly. And I think that's an important consideration here 
but yeah, addiction is a very charged word, emotion, emotive word. Um, and, and you know, I, I, there's another thing in the article too, where he talks about the link to coffee and slavery. Um, but I thought the tea to slavery link was uh, actually um, very, a little weak. And, and the tea actually has a link to addiction and an opioid addiction, actually the world's first opioid addiction crisis. So like China makes tea, Britain buys all the tea, China now has all of Britain's silver, Britain wants the silver back, what do they do? In the 1880s, they start shipping 4 million kilos of opium there and they got their silver back. Um, so, you know, I think what's interesting about bringing up caffeine it is actually was tied to sort of competing addictions between countries. Um, so, you know, if you're not a drug dealer or scientist, um, 4 million kilos is what uh, we call a very, very, very large amount. Awesome, thanks, Jehan. Del, what were your thoughts on this article? Well, as someone who has that character defect that suggests that uh, a little of something is good, maybe a whole lot of it is better, um, I found myself, you know, over a period of time, suddenly doing four-shot lattes a couple times a day, and I was amazed at the amount of work that I could get done, uh, sort of artificially stimulated in that way. Uh, but um, you know, with the arrival of COVID, I, I stopped drinking coffee and went through a lot of the same symptoms that uh, Michael Pollan described, that period uh, fuzzy headedness and uh, murkiness that follows uh, the immediate cessation. And then gradually uh, I've reached a new normal that I think is where I wanna stay actually uh, without coffee. Uh, but for, in terms of addiction, uh, I've always thought that uh, since the neural circuitry that uh, both sugary snacks, caffeine, and heroin addiction all share a very similar neural circuitry. I've always thought of uh, addiction as actually a substitute way of saying, I like it. Uh, and in fact, there is a tremendous amount of moral baggage associated with it. And uh, with the production of, of you know, compounds that we find extremely rewarding and attractive. And I like the way Michael Pollan went into sort of placing uh, the use of coffee in the context of both capitalism and uh, the world supply chain for it, and uh, you know how it it is able to direct both that supply chain and is so beneficial for uh, capitalism. Excellent, thank you. Nigam, thoughts on this article? I really liked it, and Sarah, when uh, so for the audience, just for context, so whoever's leading the show each week sends around the articles and the studies, you know, a couple days two, three, four days ahead of time, and we all read them. So when this hit my inbox, uh, this, of all the amazing things in this show, and there's more to come, this was like one of my favorites because this is the kind of stuff that I like to point out all the time. And this is the thing, this is why we started this show, how to launch an industry. Uh, what is the industry? How are we capturing people's bodies and minds and pocketbooks? And when I say we, I mean the industrial complex of the earth that is the thing, right? So, um, there's all these amazing counterpoints that exist when people say, oh, well, use of cannabis on a daily basis is bad, but they're drinking their latte and they've been doing it for 20 years. Right. And, you know, and then there's, of course, if it comes with a prescription on it, daily use is just automatically not bad. Right. So and, and I could go on and on about examples, but I think it makes a really poignant uh, point here. And caffeine is just like the immediate go-to example for this case. And then I can also share that I identify with Dell's story. So here's something anyone who went to grad school may be shocked by. 
I did this thing when I was writing my PhD thesis where I gave up caffeine. I gave up a bunch of other stuff in that time in my life too. And it was it was kind of a strange time, but you know what? Um having been a steady caffeine user for eight, nine, ten years before that on a consistent daily basis, and then cold turkeying it and going into one of the most intense work load moments of my life to that point i mean after grad school you know there's also a lot of hard stuff to do but um the uh it it wasn't it wasn't that shocking to my system and i think that speaks to the individuality factor of this as well that i used caffeine for 10 years quit it cold turkey and it really bothered me bothered me that much and i i did i did feel fresh i felt like kind of a new person and i still feel like that new person you know whatever all these years later but that that really did stand out to me that like i don't really identify with people having these like crazy traumatic experiences coming off caffeine so um it's uh yeah it's it's really interesting to see how it affects all of us i'm gonna hand the closing thoughts on this article over to you deb so when I read this article, which I thought was great, uh, I approached it with a lot of trepidation being a major coffee consumer and caffeine addicted human. Um, and I agree with all of it, except I think, you know, I pulled out the same quote that you did and that Jehan did. It's really kind of interesting. And I think that there's a, a charged statement that says, and it's not interfering with your life. And the thing of it is, is Sometimes you don't know that. I don't even know if we're the ones that should be judging that ourselves. Like other people should be judging that, whether this is, you know, coffee or if it's some other substance or activity. I mean, people are addicted to working out on a treadmill or running for hours of in a day. I mean, so, and and not doing the things within the family life that they should be doing. So I think it's hard to be uh, self-actualized when you're in that addictive mode. And part of that is talking about sleep. And you may not realize that you're not getting the proper type of sleep that you should get when you've been consuming caffeine for as long as I have. And, you know, not waking up refreshed and rather than going to yet another drug for wellness or for sleep aids, maybe you should reassess, you know, what you're doing currently and back it off and see how that works before adding on yet another molecule. Excellent. Thank you guys so much. Those are all really cool thoughts. And I, I think we should um, just bank this idea, Nigam and Jehan, we should have an episode on sleep one time, because I think sleep is, it's been coming up in my conversations with friends lately. So maybe that's a sign, uh, something else really important that I think we don't talk enough about. Um, Excellent. Uh, So we have one final juicy piece of uh, news to talk about. And that is an article entitled, Do Industry Investments in Research Institutions Create a Conflict? So imagine that scientists charged with doing research on tobacco's health implications were funded by the tobacco companies. In fact, the tobacco industry used this tactic for decades to cast doubt on the adverse health effects of smoking. But today, it would be outrageous conflict of interest Uh, Research on addictive drugs shouldn't be paid for by the people who stand to profit from selling them. So these statements aren't my statements. These are statements pulled from that article. And I think uh, I just want to start there because I think that that a, a lot of the way in which 
we on this panel sort of perceived and, and took in this article have to really do with this frame, uh, framework and how the author is uh, setting up this article. So the question is, is really, um, if we are going to um, figure out if cannabis products are safe and effective, should it be the people making those products that are responsible um, for finding out that information? So Dell, those of us in the field of cannabis science know that one of the things we sorely need, and you've already said this on this show today, is we really need more research into the safety and effectiveness of medical cannabis products, like the ones that most of us can find in our state dispensaries. So how is this going to happen? Where, where, where's the money gonna come from? Well, my first thought on reading the article was uh, how someone who wants to identify bias uh, in, in industry is weaving all this bias into their uh, discussion about uh, cannabis. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that cannabis actually falls on the same spectrum of addiction that say uh, opiate-based medications fall on. And uh, he, he kind of speaks about them with one voice. Uh, my, my question is exactly that. Where is the money going to come from? Uh, we have a peculiar place with cannabis in that it's not federally recognized, and there's very little federal research authorized. NIH is not likely to fund this research, so a lot of it ends up coming from the private industry. Uh, in the particular case of research that we just completed preclinically, uh, on uh, CBD, uh, CBN, and combinations thereof for uh, studying sleep preclinically, uh, we, we found that, uh, you know, where is that research going to come from if not from private industry? Uh, you know, and we were able to determine some very interesting things about CBD, CBN, and CBD, CBN combinations uh, that we wouldn't have ever found out about otherwise. Awesome. Thank you. Jehan, I think you have a few comments to add to Dell's thoughts. Oh, oh absolutely. Um, and I echo that. Where's the money going to come from? You know, I think this article, you know, is a special kind of unfair, uh, hypocritical, and, and maybe stupid. I mean, the author sounds like someone who's just a little jealous that their colleagues are getting funding and investments and having a great time generating important and much-needed data. And I gotta wonder if he even ran this by anyone at the university. So, you know, sometimes you get so upset at an article, you have to dig deeper. And this is one of those instances. And so I was like, okay, well, let's look at some stats about the University of Montreal and where their money's coming from. Well, they're the fourth in the world in terms of volume of research that comes out of there. Um, that I would say that the top 10 in anything probably has, you know, private funding <laughs> would be the number one thing, you know. You show me a research program funded entirely by federal funds, and I'll show you an empty lab bench. Um, so, you know, I feel like as long as these things are disclosed, who cares? And where does this type of reasoning lead us, and where does it end? Um, you know, am I a shill for big tobacco because part of my PhD grant was paid for by taxes from people using tobacco products? Hey, Sarah, there's a, there's a link between how much cannabinoids I put on bone cells and have people smoking cigarettes that funded that research. I mean, where does it end? Um, you know, and that was a state grant. Um, but, you know, he mentioned like this thing I thought was really funny. Oh, universities shouldn't get the sheen from university. It's like, 
isn't that sheen a product of something oily that you don't want on you? Um, but, you know, so aside from his bad analogies, um, I just want to say, looking into the alumni and students and what they do at the University of Montreal, just look at the top five multi-million dollar companies that have come out of students, faculty, colleagues there include uh, fuel, like biofuels, ecofuels, Bitcoin. So if you're worried about the financial transactions happening, don't worry. The University of Montreal has, you know, <laughs> their students have developed their own Bitcoin and financial transaction software. Um, you know, and, and then again, also pharmaceutical companies have funds. And, and you know, and I guess, and in, in, you know, to paraphrase someone else um, from long ago who received outside funding to publish his literature, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. And you know, just to end my, my rant um, and be sensitive of time here, I feel like I'm turning into my father with, with this closing statements. And that's, you know, go do research in a communist country. I bet you in places like say Russia, North Korea or China, you know, I bet the government has a lot more influence on what you do in your lab and the nature of your results, even how you interpret your results than any private company could have. So, you know, I just felt like this was a big straw man, red herring kind of thing. Um, and it is, is, is harmful. And I would say, you know, aside from my silly rants, I feel like this type of thinking would negatively impact public health in the long run. If you're trying to protect people and understand the risks of these projects or, or products being developed by the cannabis space, I think the only place that's going to happen is in a, an academic center where they're not really tied to the research results. They are, they're tied to the data and what the data is leading them to. And I, I really feel that, um, yeah, I'm just concerned about this type of thinking where his big concern is, well, if we do this, it'll be destigmatized. And it's like, well, that's the point is we don't want to have bias in the research. We don't want to have stigma. Awesome, Jehan. Next time, work a little bit harder telling us how you really feel about the paper. But I, I appreciate that attempt. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you. See, this is what happens when we don't usually give Jehan an opportunity to comment on the articles that he chooses. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, Deb, for a, a final word. This is a topic near and dear to yours and my heart uh, together. Yeah, no, I totally agree with Jehan's rant, and I don't know if I can really add more to it other than the only way to get real legit research is through the, the, the private companies right now. And I love that some of the states in the country that have legal cannabis programs are understanding this and having collaborative um, programs with incentives, of course, to have private businesses and medical researchers come together get funded and understand what cannabinoids can do and for what indications and what dosing. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of those states for sure. And I think that's until this federal landscape changes, that's probably the way it's gonna be. Awesome, thanks everybody. So that's all we have for this week's news roundup. Uh, we'll be back after another short break for Rapid Fire Science.
Hi all, my name is Shelby Hartman and I'm the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Double Blind, an education platform and media company at the forefront of the psychedelic movement. Our mission is to provide people like you with all the information they need to safely embark on a journey with psychedelics. We have a print magazine that comes out twice a year, a course on how to grow your own mushrooms, which comes with live support from mycologists, and webinars with psychedelic thought leaders like Paul Stamets and Rick Strassman. Find out more at doubleblindmag.com. Welcome back, listener, and thank you so much for staying tuned for the next section of our episode, which is Rapid Fire Science. In Rapid Fire Science, we go around providing a brief commentary and discussion about two articles um, published in scientific journals. And the first article that we are going to discuss is a recent clinical study uh, looking at CBD for diabetic neuropathic pain. The title of the paper is The Effects of Cannabidiol-Based Sublingual Tablets on Diabetic Neuropathic Pain. The first author is Dr. Deb Kimless, uh, one of our guests today. And this article is published online in the Journal of Diabetes and Metabolism. So this is a prospective open-label drug and dose controlled study. The primary objective was to evaluate the safety and efficacy of CBD sublingual tablets for the treatment of patients suffering from chronic diabetic neuropathic pain. And at the conclusion of the study, the patients reported significant reduction in pain from their baseline. And the secondary endpoints um, that were analyzing the effects of CBD tablets on both sleep quality and anxiety score also revealed statistically significant improvement in both of those. And no adverse drug reactions were reported. So kudos to you, Deb, on this uh, publication. And uh, one question that I have for you is, what was the most difficult part of conducting this study? And what are you planning to do next? So uh, the most difficult part was finding subjects that meet the inclusion exclusion criteria always that want to participate. And it's, it's easier said than done, quite frankly, to, to, to get subjects to want to participate that have the condition that don't have certain uh, disease processes that would confound our, um, our data. This one particularly was a little bit more open. We allowed patients who are on FDA approved medications for diabetic neuropathic pain to continue because we honestly didn't know how these responses would be and how they would respond to it. Um, and interestingly enough, we had to talk people off the ledge of staying on their medications because they, they really wanted to get off it feeling like they felt so much better taking the CBD tablets and they felt that their, their medications weren't really doing anything. Our 2.0 study, which we're recruiting for currently, is um, a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. But we will have a washout period of people on these FDA-approved drugs for neuropathic pain, as well as for cannabinoids. Awesome. Thank you. We look forward to looking uh, for those results. Nigam, I know you love talking about uh, early-stage clinical trials. Can you share with us your thoughts on this study? Uh, yeah, so I'm not going to uh, dive into 
all the details and this is deb please forgive me because i haven't reviewed all the details but um i'll just speak uh peripherally you know it was just uh great to see this and i actually kind of like that it was with a uh product versus this more you know nebulous thing of like oh we source cbd from some lab and or just you know it's not it's not as like this is a little more palatable to me it's like a little bit closer to the to the outcome so I, I like to see that and then i also um just in my own uh personal uh life and network i i know some folks who suffer from uh diabetes who suffer from neuropathic pain so i would just really enjoyed seeing the results and and i'm excited to see what you know the the, the follow-up that deb said she's working on Awesome. Thanks. Dell, thoughts on this uh, publication of Debs? Well, first of all, I want to commend Dr. Kimless for a, a well-constructed, uh, uh, carefully conducted study. Uh, and uh, I also liked how well articulated uh, the clinical population was and who was being excluded. Uh, we don't always see that. Uh, the other thing that I thought was uh, well-conceived was uh, the use of a sublingual tablet uh, to avoid gastric metabolism and ending up with a bunch of metabolites that might confound the study's results. Uh, one question I did have was, uh, is there any plan to look at uh, combinations of CBD and THC, uh, like nabixamol type uh, combination drugs? Uh, I was, you know, uh, I like the idea that that it actually affected sleep, uh, which is a comorbidity with that kind of neuropathic pain. Uh, but I was wondering about whether or not there were any plans to look at uh, combination drugs in the future. Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. And um, the answer is yes, when we get the funding, because these, these, these projects are really expensive. And um, this is a self-funded, I mean, I know we talked about this in the last segment, about uh, own businesses funding their own uh, research, but um, you know we're trying to do it as ethically as possible. All these are IRB approved, listed on clintrials.gov, but um, it, it costs money to do this. And um, so the answer is yes. It's a little tricky when you start combining um, THC because it limits where we can conduct our research because uh, even though we have um, uh, state license to grow, process, and dispense. We can't cross state lines. Again, that limits our ability to recruit for certain diseases. So, but yes, it's on the horizon. Um, as soon as those uh, cards and letters that are green colored with president heads on them come in, we'll be more than happy to run those programs. Awesome, thank you. Jehan, thoughts on the article? Uh, well, I would echo what a lot of other folks are saying about this article. I'm trying to think of a comment that wouldn't cost a bunch of money <laughs> to do, because um, immediately I'm like, gosh, I wonder, you know, what would happen if it was, you know, a, a small dose of CBN uh, compared to CBD, because you also see similar things endorsed for the degradation product of THC as you, as you do CBD. And I wonder in a in a head-to-head -head competition, you know, what the effects of sleep might be. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Debbie made a great point here about how if we understand more about the endocannabinoid system, we actually may be able to explain these positive results. Is there like one thing you, if you could ask like a genie, you know, answer me one question about how the 
endocannabinoid system works that you think would clarify it is like, where is CBD's main target site? Where is THC's main target site? Or, you know, what, what would be that? I don't know if you could comment on what would be the one of those things you'd like to know to, to have a clear mechanism of action. Oh, so if that genie were really in existence, I'd have to come up with this broad, generalized thing to get the most bang for my buck, right? So I guess, genie, please tell me which cannabinoids work on a multitude of receptors at once so that we can, you know, create this sort of targeted or multi-targeted um, medication that could, that could help, you know, rid the world of pain. That would be my my best guess, you know, because right now we're sort of piecemealing it together, you know, and with the absence of THC, because ultimately the goal to any company is to sell it across state line, not just limit it to, to one state. That's the love affair with CBD or hemp derived, you know, cannabinoids so that it can be sold that way. You know, wouldn't it be great to come up with, um, something that could be sold across state line that, you know, doesn't create this, you know, intense uh, intoxicating effect if that's looked upon uh, negatively for some reason in our country is euphorophobic, but, um, you know, something of that nature. So please, Jeannie, guide me so that I know all the things and can be most useful. That is as beautiful as it is inspirational. Thank you. That's awesome. And it's a very cool segue to our next article. You know, um, I, I like, Deb, how you, how you wished for a multi-targeted cannabinoid. And as most of you know, my favorite cannabinoid, uh, CBD, is multi-targeted, most of us believe. And oddly, especially in the beginning of my research, um, people treated that as um, baggage. Uh, you know, it, oh, it's it's dirty. Like, no, it's not dirty. It's awesome, right? Uh, you know, and I've said this before. It makes it really hard to write a grant on CBD because many scientists and grant reviewers want to know the one mechanism of action that you are going to prove to us. You know, through your research. It's like, no, I'd like to prove to you, as Deb said, that it does a, a whole lot of super cool things. And so why I think this um, brings us interestingly to the next um, article that I've selected is this next article talks about different approaches in drug discovery. And really one of the evolving approaches has been this small molecule, very single target mechanistic approach. And so this article discusses a little bit the history of drug discovery approaches, um, the place that artificial intelligence plays currently and in the future um, in drug discovery. And why I chose this article is it does this really interesting interweaving of that story of the evolution of drug discovery, introducing artificial intelligence, but then throwing in there some really cool stuff that we love to talk about like addiction, drugs of abuse, how do you handle a medicine that has abuse liability? Is it ethical? 
to change natural products into a synthetic molecule that may make it more expensive and that certain populations may no longer be able to access. So the article was long and full of thought-provoking ideas, so I apologize a little bit uh, for including it at the end here, but I just, I, I liked it for some of the thought-provoking little paragraphs sort of uh, scattered throughout it. So the paper is entitled, From Molecules of Life to New Therapeutic Approaches, an Evolution Marked by the Advent of Artificial Intelligence, The Cases of Chronic Pain and Neuropathic Disorders by Jean-Louis Krauss and Drug Discovery Today, January 2021. Nature invents and man tries to copy it. So for over a century, organic chemists, uh, specifically medicinal chemists, have never stopped trying to create molecular structures with improved biological properties for use in the clinic. Most recently, technologies offered by artificial intelligence have been used at all levels of research, from the development of new methods of synthesis to methods of application leading to personalized medicine. Although such approaches are likely to lead to exciting developments in human healthcare, they're likely to come at a cost. And it is currently unclear whether all those who would benefit from them will be able to afford to do so. So Dell, I wanna start with you. Uh, this article ends with a discussion about how artificial intelligence may be used to generate small molecule drugs based on the chemical structure of psychedelics. What is the major benefit of doing this but taking that into consideration, what may be lost in the process? You know, this is right up uh, my area of interest. Uh, we use a kind of uh, function-oriented uh, computational synthesis in the development of uh, new psychedelic compounds where we take molecules apart, look at uh, what the chemical moieties do in terms of uh, protein transport and different types of signaling and you know, reconstruct the molecule based upon what our target, uh, what our target really is. And I, I believe that these computational strategies will end up being uh, one of the uh, most beneficial ways we can uh, look at medicinal chemistry of psychedelic compounds uh, and be able to uh, contour them for specific indications. Uh, as to how that uh, influences cost, you know, I think that's a whole other discussion about uh, how we deliver compounds, how we deliver pharmaceuticals uh, to communities that really need them, uh, and has to do more with uh, that uh, capitalist distribution model uh, rather than uh, the pharmaceutical uh, inquiry itself. Uh, I'm also using uh, this type of uh, AI analysis to be able to define clinical populations uh, for uh, chronic pain studies with UCSD, where we're you know, taking those people who failed with other uh, you know, pain strategies, excluding uh, you know, certain populations that may be contraindicated for use with psychedelics, and then falling into where, what areas might be most beneficial uh, for use of psychedelics with chronic pain. So I, I really see this AI model as offering a tremendous benefit in a number of areas. Very cool, thank you. So Deb, turning to you, this article hits on one of my favorite topics. What is the difference between a drug and a medicinal drug? And why are certain molecules for recreational use struck by pharmacological infamy? 
How do you see these questions relating to the topic of artificial intelligence-driven drug development? Do you think AI may help to remove stigma from drugs if, if a robot is the one that ends up telling us that it's useful as opposed to um, a bunch of feisty scientists? Or does it lose cultural knowledge and practices that might be harmful? So are there things that the robot doesn't know that might be lost in translation? Oh, that's a pretty deep question there. Um, I think that AI, as Dell is applying it, is really interesting when it comes to looking and breaking down the chemical structure and being sort of predictive in uh, targets. But I think what everyone talks about in psychedelics, and I'm going to have to, again, defer to the bigger experts here on the panel, is that second setting have a tremendous amount to do with the responses people get from taking these molecules. And so I don't, I think, it, you know, AI is kind of agnostic to that. I don't think it, it actually looks at set and setting in a particular person. And if you're here to try to design a, you know, a, a patient specific um, therapy, you know, that's a huge piece that goes along with it that's that's sort of missing in, in this in this AI space. But I think when it comes to coming up with a suite of molecules and potential, it is incredibly exciting. When it comes to stigma, you know, we've got a whole bunch of people who believe that, you know, if it if something is agnostic to set and setting and it's not called a psychedelic or psycholytic, and maybe they come up with a whole new moniker, maybe they'll be more receptive to it. Um, and then there are people who are holistically involved and say, no, this is exactly what we want and you know, not thinking about stigma at all. So I, I think the jury's out on that. Awesome, thank you. Nigam, what were your thoughts on this article full of ideas? <laughs> so I, I really like this and I just I think it makes a ton of sense. So I've had this experience of getting so so the listeners who who know me by now, but for for new people. So I did my uh, PhD in organic chemistry at Purdue. Organic and analytical is really big at Purdue. Uh, huge chem program, multiple Nobel laureates, and so on and so forth. And um, so I just was was exposed to a lot of really amazing research. And even in my program, I got to like cycle through different. Um, departments. So, you know, I was in pharmacy for a little bit. I was in Orgo. I had this analytical project, blah, blah, blah. So um, what I learned at that time is I was really fascinated by this transition from the old days where a chemist would spend a career, 20, 30, 40 years, making a class of molecules. Maybe they make like 10 or 20 like endpoint molecules in like a, you know, a whole career and all this. And then there was this in the moment when I was like, uh, you know, entering grad school in the early or early 2010s, like there was this big transition to um, using modeling and using uh, a lot of these kind of like next gen solutions where you cut out a lot of the steps, not only in the uh, synthetic process, but in the like targeting process to specific receptors and so on and so forth. Right. So I've kind of been like tracking the evolution and, and more recently, um, as I've been delving more and more and more into psychedelic space, learning from my friends and colleagues that are founding these research companies in this space, that they're leaning a lot on these tools as well because it just saves time. It's just more efficient. It's 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 pretty great. So um, 
one one thing that I will say too, just back to my own little anecdote about Purdue, is there was kind of this strange experience of you would walk around uh, certain areas in in the chem and I mean the chem buildings at Purdue are like humongous, right? So it's like there's all these like little hallways and all these crazy labs, and you're walking around and you would go and walk past some of these like you know medicinally or like medicinal chemistry organic chemistry heavy labs and you walk by and you just see this endless glassware and endless rotavabs and endless everything and it's like an antiquity i was like walking around watching this old behemoth kind of like come to a close you know so um yeah so so that's kind of kind of my take on it but um if we can move towards useful targets faster if we can help people faster then i'm all about it very cool. Jehan, what are your thoughts on AI and psychedelics? Uh, well, first, I just wanted to share um, one or two quotes, maybe three quotes. They're all pretty short uh, from this article. But, um, you know, I love this quote. They, they say that the fundamental problem related to such drugs is that they are open to abuse. Feel tense? Take a pill. Can't sleep? Take a pill. How many times do we hear such refrains? And, and talks about like, how humans take energizers, sedatives, pain relievers, and hypnotics to cope with their pressure-filled lives, and cites Cleopatra taking sleeping pills while Mark Anthony was away on a trip, which I thought perhaps was the first you know, documented celebrity endorsement of a medical product. Um, but they also have this really great quote, which was, um, our unending search for life's meaning deep psychological satisfaction and insights into mortality have led us to collect, catalog, and even concoct substances that allow us to transcend normal physical imitations and routines. And this quote got me thinking about AI and one, how much I don't know about it. And, um, but we also some, there's a lot of debate over how AI works as I was trying to look into this um, and as it gets more advanced. And so one of the questions that this article created was, can AI have or appreciate a psychedelic experience? And what I mean by that is um, not, you know, if you put acid in your MacBook, is it going to just start tripping out and showing fireworks on the screen? Is more like in research, studying human brains, psychedelics can be a great tool for understanding consciousness. How do you study a system? Mess it up. Um, you know, and so this could maybe give us insight into how AI works if it's supposed to model the human brain or model cognition, and we give it a psychedelic, what will it, what will it show us about how it thinks about the human brain, which I think, you know, so in a way that uh, I guess it's a little meta, as the kids say on Reddit, right, um, that we, if we are giving synthetic, you know, psychedelics to a computer program, and it's interacting with them, you know, are we studying the AI or is the AI studying us? I think it blurs the lines a little bit. I love it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for a really interesting discussion about uh, both of these articles. So that wraps up our uh, research discussion. We're going to take one final short break and come back to play our game. At Marku and Aurora, we leverage our deep experience in science and fundamental research to advise industry leaders and corporate teams. If you would like to open a discussion, please reach out to us using the contact form on our website. That's M-A-R-C-U-A-R-O-R-A 
com. Enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back, listener, and thank you for sticking with us to uh, the end of our show, which is the game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Today, we'll be having some fun with true, Two Truths and a Lie, where I read out three short stories from the news. Two will be actual stories, and one will be completely made up by me. Your job will be to use your sound deductive reasoning skills to sniff out the stinker. So for cannabis users, passing the joint to the left is on indefinite leave during COVID. However, there are still a few lifestyle hacks and activities that can help people spread the bud. The most important thing to remember is the safety of social distancing. Keep your saliva to yourself, pass nothing ever, and don't exhale in the vicinity of others. Here are three ways people are sharing cannabis during the pandemic, which one is made up by me. Number one, cannabis stash and dash. On Instagram, 710 Labs in California is doing stash and dash drops. In these, they take a bag of products and leave them at a location, then Instagram it for people to run out and snatch. It's a great way to share some love and weed during this time. And if you're in the giving mood, you could do something similar with your friends. In the name of connection during a pandemic, whip up a bag of goodies, drop them off at your friend's door like an Amazon Prime delivery, then text them an Ayo, look outside. <laughs> Number two, Washington DC cannabis legislation has greenlit pot possession and consumption in the district, but also expressly forbids its sale. Thus, a gifting economy has emerged with random objects standing in as a proxy for pot. You can't buy weed, but you can buy, say, a Yu-Gi-Oh gift card for $30, then accept some grams for free. Tommy, who has requested that we change his name, looks no further than his childhood bedroom. My thing is, I have like nostalgic BS whether it be an action figure, a toy car, playing cards, CDs, old DVDs, he says. Last week, he sold someone a mint condition 1995 Weedle Pokemon card for $250, or should I say, Tokemon. And article number three. A Florida man is accused of enticing an alligator to eat a pot brownie after his friend caught the reptile. Timothy Kepke, 27, of Hobie Sound, and Noah Osborne, 22, of Stewart, were arrested on October 3rd. Each was charged with unlawfully taking an alligator, which is a felony. According to a Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission report, a complaint was received in August about Kepke holding an alligator. A video apparently showed Kepke trying to get the alligator to eat some homemade pot brownie bites after which the alligator ag reacted aggressively. Officers said they went to Kepke's home on September 17th and Kepke told them he was the person in the video. Kepke told officers Osborne caught the reptile with his bare hands in Palm City on August 26th. He said they later released the gator alive. All right, so now it is up to you all. You can either discuss amongst yourselves or take turns chiming in, deciding which two articles are true and which one I fabricated. Terry begins with Florida man. So, I mean, 
that's already a clue that we're going to be deceived because you can believe anything that starts with Florida man. Uh, so that's my, my first thought. Uh, um, and, but then I, then I start thinking, uh, is anyone going to be giving away uh, uh, bags of, of weed and cannabis products? Uh, that's slightly suspect. Uh, but I, I'll have to land on Florida man. Does anybody want to disagree with Dell? Does one or two sound fishy? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would have to agree with Dell, or not disagree slightly with Dell. I mean, I think the Florida man is suspicious, and having been a host of this game and often used Florida in headlines as a way to deceive people, it's, it's a very good tactic. Successfully. Um, but, but what makes me think it's real is it's two 20-year-olds that caught an alligator and think it's a good idea to give a another you know animal system cannabinoids um, but you know hey then maybe they'll get a case report out of it um the tokimon thing uh, you know giving away your 90s tchotchkes as a front for selling weed i mean yeah that's a good that's just a good business model i think and then and, and, and uh yeah i mean it, it happens in dc i remember when i used to work down there you like you <laughs> they have these places that would sell like 50 dollars t-shirts <laughs> it's just like or like the jar costs fifty dollars or something like that. Um, the one that you know makes me suspect is the first one, the cannabis stash and dash. Well, I, well, I do believe there probably are services out there like this. Um, it opens you up to all sorts of legal issues, and that's where I. But you know, people are kind of stupid and brazen, and I've done much worse things. Um, but I feel like leaving cannabis and then texting it, hey, yo, it's outside. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, things disappear so quickly off the front porch here in Brooklyn, whether it's a package or a bicycle, that I just don't see it really working out very well. <laughs> so I'm going to say uh, the stash and dash, if indeed, uh, you know, what I wasn't clear, Sarah, is are people paying for it? Or is it just like a fun thing people are doing? And, and then... I'll just say I think number one one is false, regardless if people are paying for it or not. I just I, it feels it feels uh, like you need to sign a waiver for that one. A little legal risk there. I, I just have one interjection on the Florida man thing, which of course fascinates me. But uh, the idea that we give pot brownies to an alligator becomes more aggressive. Does that sound right? I don't know. I mean, that's, I don't know about yeah, the cannabinoid receptor distribution in like reptilian brains, but uh, that just seems to fly in the face of uh, common knowledge. But so, that's also unless it was like a really, really, really sativa brownie, you know, some like really, really uppity stuff. So, um, or they were he was responding to the sugar, and yeah. it just enough cannabinoid. I I kind of want to know what the the, the Floridians, you know, do they have a follow-up, you know, with uh, with the with the with the gator? I'm so glad you're here, Deb. <laughs> I want to know. Um, and thank you. I'm calling from Florida. I think I met that guy. Neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I know that person. Um, so I, I'd like to weigh in and and support Dell's choice of number three, the Florida man and the pot brownies. Um, again, I think that the, the gator would be pretty chill. I think uh, I'm fascinated by gators too, but uh, I don't know. I think, you know, the cannabis stash and dash, the one thing 
Jehan, that maybe you're not, you know, considering in this, because I agree to give stuff away free. So I think people are so um, looking forward to social connectivity during this pandemic that they're doing anything to make people, you know, connect with people. And, and as ludicrous as leaving things on a front step uh, and then Instagramming it, you know, I think maybe that's their way of trying to connect with others. Um, and the Toki men, yeah, Washington has proven, DC has proven that this is a great business model. People sell t-shirts and all kinds of accoutrement and get free swag. <laughs> so I am, I'm, I'm choosing number three, but you know, I do give a nod to number one as well. Right, Nigam, what are your thoughts? Okay, so I, I'm glad I'm going last because I was gonna be like really, really critical about number one. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I think that, okay, okay, here's what I'm gonna say. Uh, here's a question. And I actually, Sarah, you didn't clarify. I know you're a professor, but you didn't clarify the rules of the test here. So you're not allowed I, to ask any questions. <laughs> you can come to me after the results are revealed. <laughs> you, 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 you can schedule a meeting during my office hours on Thursday. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so what I restrained myself from doing literally, and this is just like being in the biz in California, you kind of get used to this kind of stuff. I restrained myself from going to the BCC site and like looking up 710 labs license and trying to understand like, Oh, are they actually licensed? Oh, are they selling CBD? Oh, are they leaving like CBD vape pens from a hemp origin on a, on someone's step? Because that I could believe. And so I, I stopped myself from like trying to process and figure all that out in like, you know, 75 seconds or whatever. But, um, so just to flesh that out, like for the listener, just briefly, um, in California, we have delivery for cannabis. It's amazing. You can get a lot of cannabis products delivered like a pizza. It's just, here, here you go. It's pretty great. Um, but there's uh, significant compliance rules. So um, they have to, there's rules about the receipts. There's rules about the cars and the security and the cameras and the uh, just a lot of, of regulation. And I mean, there's there's good reason for most of it. So anyways, this thing of like leaving it on the doorstep and then like publicizing that you're doing that without necessarily following the compliance rules from a licensed thing. Cool. So that, that just seems that's why I'm, I'm like harping on it. But um, once again, what a lot of brands do is sure they have, you know, they're in THC or they're in CBD, but then they contract with someone else and get into the other space anyways. Right. So could it be like a 710 brand, but it's not, it's outside regulated California market? Sure. So anyways, I, I talked a lot about the topic, but to hit the other ones, the Florida thing, I believe outright. Um, the DC thing, I believe outright. So I, I think the first one's false. All right. So we have two votes for Florida Man and two votes for Stash and Dash. So you all believed that you could possibly um, buy a Pokemon card from someone and get some free weed. Uh, so I actually found this article. Um, it's true. Uh, I was on a live virtual discussion with my medical cannabis class on Wednesday night, and some of the students were talking about how this is the way that you buy cannabis in Washington, D.C., and I had absolutely no idea. I guess it started mostly with uh, cannabis socks. So you'd buy a pair of marijuana leaf socks and, you know, they'd be slightly overpriced because along with them came a side of uh, free cannabis. Uh, so I, I, I came across uh, that article and you are all correct. That is a true article. 
the next article I came across was uh, published in Leafly yesterday. And the title of the article was How to Share Weed During a Pandemic. And they gave a list of five different things you could do to share weed during a pandemic. And number five on the list was the Stash and Dash article. And they claimed that this is something that 710 Labs is actually doing. I have an angry letter to write to the editor of Leafly. <laughs> Shout out, <laughs> shout, shout out BCC. <laughs> the BCC is going to get BCC'd in this email. <laughs> okay, okay. So I successfully fooled Jehan and Nigam with that one. Oh. Um, and so that leaves um, Florida man. And um, you guys are right, Dell and Deb. I completely fabricated that article. I'm sure there have been many stolen alligators in Florida, but I don't know for a fact that any of them are actually uh, force-fed pot brownies. So good job, Dell and Deb, for picking out the, ah, there you go, is that your gator? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, wow, Sarah, I, that's impressive. I shouldn't have, a, that just goes to show you, whenever I hear Florida, I just think anything's possible. I know we're going to have to stop using that as a tool in these games moving forward. <laughs> Texas man. <laughs> yeah. What's like, it would be funny to like do a rank. There was always ranking of like states, right? It'd be mm -hmm. funny to do a ranking of states, like the most to least believable for silly stories. So I think like Florida's right at the top. Right. And then like Texas, like Al is far yeah. Alabama, maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, toss North Dakota in there. I don't know. Just like, I don't know. It would, be, it would be kind of a funny exercise. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. That wraps up our show for this week. Thank you for clicking, taping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We all really appreciate it. We'd also like to thank our trusty audio engineer. The show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. And please be sure to check out some of the episode artwork um, that is um, created by Selena Lee. You can check out some of her work on our show notes and find links to all of the articles that we talked about today, except for the article on Florida Man. 